To us, Jesus had some strange evangelistic strategies. A couple of those strategies are noted in the Word of God when he deals with a Syrophoenician woman and also when he deals with a rich man. You can find these in the Gospels. Mark 7.24 is Jesus dealing with the Syrophoenician woman and her faith. And then over in Matthew 19.16, we have Jesus dealing with the rich man. The reason I start this way is because the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, her faith and Ruth's faith are so incredibly uh, linked together in my mind. They almost parallel one another. Remember, Jesus did clearly say that you cannot come into the kingdom unless. And so when he's dealing with the Syrophoenician woman and the rich young ruler, Jesus' evangelistic strategy is probably not one that we would use today, although we should probably use it. But notice with the Syrophoenician woman, she comes to him and her daughter had an unclean spirit. And the woman was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, notice this, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you were referred to in the language of a dog, how would be, what would be your response to Christ giving this charge to you? And the Bible says, but she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And notice his response. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In her case, she laid hold of Christ, even considering all the obstacles that Jesus put before her, pagan, ignored, referred to as a dog, and yet she had this determined faith and would not walk away from Jesus empty-handed. She laid hold of Christ, and she got what she desired. In the case of the rich man, we know that story. In Matthew's gospel, we find that he approaches the Lord and says, Good teacher, what must I do? What deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus begins he actually says, what does it mean to be good first? And then he begins to give out, enumerate these commands that the rich young ruler is listening to. Uh, such commands as, well, you should not murder and should not commit adultery and should not steal. Honor your father and mother. And he responds by saying, I've kept all of these. And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me, notice, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the rich young ruler himself turns away because he does not have this determined faith. So I began our time together this morning by reminding you of the Gospels and how Jesus gave out the Gospel and how he taught and also this emphasis on the Syrophoenician woman and putting her beside Ruth. And so Ruth lived some 3,000 years ago. So when we talk about this incredible determined faith in the life of Ruth, we must also look to ourselves and our own faith today. That's what we're going to do. The title of the sermon, The Providential Grace of God 
and determined faith. Let's read our passage together this morning as a church family. The Bible says in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined, there it is, to go with her, she said no more. Last week we talked about Naomi and her honest faith. Do you think Naomi saw the whole picture at this point? Well, of course not. Could she see that God had actually brought the resolution home to Naomi's heart? Even all the dark, frowning providences that she's gone through, God has worked so mightily, and actually we might say quickly, because the resolution of all of it is clinging to her at this moment in her daughter-in-law. But when it comes to Ruth, we look at a faith, uh, whereas Naomi's was an honest faith, we have Ruth with a determined faith, uh, an affectionate loyalty and devotion like Hardly any other place we ever see in the Word of God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Here is a lady who is a Moabite that ends up landing in the very lineage of the Messiah. And that is the ultimate goal of why God saved her was to to save her soul, but to put her in the lineage of Christ. There's a secondary purpose, and that's the fact that she's going to be the great-grandmother of King David. But think about this at this moment, reading this text. What if Ruth turns back to Moab? If she turns back to Moab, she has the hope of remarriage. Uh, Naomi's already said this to her. Uh, it's bleak if you go up to Jerusalem, to Judah. But if you go back to Moab, you have hope of remarriage. You have hope of bearing children. If she turns back, she has the familiarity of her own people and her own land and her own culture. If she goes back, she has the security of a father's home, and she has her father's protection. She has just been told, however, by Naomi uh, to go the way of her sister. She says to her, go home. Why? Because think about these essentials in life. You've got hope. You've got future. You've got familiar surroundings. You've got security. Seems to be a no-brainer. What would you have done? Would you have gone back? These things are considered essentials. If she goes to Judah, she is basically going to join herself up with another widow. And positionally, there's nothing worse in that time frame than to be a widow without the possibility of marriage. So we'll have two widows on Poverty Road. It's basically what we have. She would have no familiarity with the people if she goes to Judah, no familiarity with the land, no familiarity with the culture. So please think about the choice that Ruth has at this point. This is where Ruth finds herself. She's in the very 
valley of decision. What I want to do is observe some of the aspects of Ruth's faith today in this passage. Notice that Orpah obeys the command of her mother-in-law and the strength of the text. Uh, Ruth actually clings to Naomi. So we never hear or see of Orpah anymore. However, Ruth's response is altogether different. There is this unrelenting determination in her soul. So three quick things about Ruth's faith, and then we're going to end with four points of application that are true in the realm of faith for everyone, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're actually synonymous. We've just got the privilege of looking back to Calvary, whereas they look toward it. But first, notice that a determined faith cleaves. The word clings, or in this text, clung to, or the word cleave, is the same word used in Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. It's the idea of sticking together. It's the idea of joining together with total loyalty, devotion, and affection. It has the connotation of skin clinging to your bones. It has the connotation of a, your tongue clinging to the roof of your mouth. It means to leave one group of people and irreversibly join yourself to another group. Well, Orpah is going back to her land, her culture, her people, her gods. Yet here is Ruth clinging to Naomi. What this screams is loyalty and affection. Ruth cleaves to her mother-in-law. Now, they say that it's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. Right? Well, here is a woman whose mind will not be changed no matter what. Here is absolute loyalty and genuine affection. So determined faith cleaves. Second, a determined faith follows no matter the cost. In 15 through 17, notice, she is no doubt, Naomi is trying her best to persuade her daughter-in-law to go back. She is persuading her to do this. She's purposeful in doing this. First, she uses peer pressure. Any of you young people watching today know anything about peer pressure? She says, Orpah has gone back. She left, so you should leave too. Then she says she's gone back to her people. Orpah is going back to her ethnicity. She's going back to her national identity. We don't think about this as much today. I think we should. But back in the day, ethnic and national roots meant so much more than they do today. In her day, this would have been a powerful, persuasive argument. Not only is there the peer pressure that Orpah's gone back, but what about her people and her culture that she's gone back to? You should go back as well. At this point, Naomi says she has gone back to her gods. One of the gods in Moab was Chemosh. The Moabites, however, actually worshipped many gods. Yet, like most uh, pluralistic societies, they would venerate one god in particular over another because he was considered to be the divine patron above all. He was the god who looked after you with protection and prosperity and an internal order. So there's not... Only the national and ethnic pullings on Ruth, 
that Naomi's persuading her with, but now she brings in the religious identity to it. So Orpah has gone back to her people and to her God, our gods, you go too. And Naomi ends with this command, return after your sister-in-law. Now, why would Naomi do this? She knows Yahweh God. She's, uh, she is a woman of faith. Well, some commentators believe that she simply has an earthly concern for, for Ruth's well-being. And I think that is justified in the reading of the text in the first chapter. Some believe that Naomi is actually positioning Ruth to make a decision between a false God and the true and living God. I think it's conjecture to try to read into the text or to speculate. But here's one thing that is absolutely clear. By Naomi telling Ruth to go back to your people and to your gods, she puts Ruth right in the middle of the valley of decision. The lines are clearly drawn so that she goes back. She's going back to a false god. And if she goes with Naomi, she is going to the place of the living God. So whether it was purposeful or not, she has placed Ruth straight in the midst of the valley of decision. Ruth turns right around and she pleads with her mother-in-law. First, don't urge me to leave you. And second part of that command, don't urge me to stop following after you. Don't tell me to go back and stop telling me not to follow you. And at this point, she's going to use words that drop from her lips. We may say here that the words that come from Ruth's lips are some of the most memorable in all of Scripture. You've probably heard these used in a, in a wedding ceremony. I've used them in a wedding ceremony. They're probably not the best words to use there because uh, here this is a woman to a woman, and then there's obviously overtones in this that are not actually lived out in the marriage relationship. I'll point out one of those in a moment. But unless we define what these terms mean, it's probably not best to use those in a wedding ceremony. But think about this for a moment. Dr. Block says, Few utterances in the Bible match Ruth's speech for sheer poetic beauty and extraordinary courage and spirituality that is expressed in the words that Ruth says. Think about this. She says first, where you go, I will go. That's north, south, east, and west. I will go. In other words, I will be your traveling companion for the rest of my life. Then she adds, where you lodge is where I will lodge. Now think about the comprehensiveness of this, whether it's a cave or a cottage or the palace of a king or a tent of a pauper, I will lodge where you lodge. And then she says, your people, my people, your God, my God. Now think about the strength of this. With these brief words, she has just renounced her ethnic and religious heritage. Your people, actually in the Hebrew, your people, my people. Your God, my God. Your people will be my people. Not Moabites and not Moab, and not Chemosh, but Yahweh and Judah, the people of God. Somewhere down the line, you can know that Ruth has learned something from her mother-in-law about the sovereignty of God and the beauty of God and the majesty, holiness, and faithfulness and compassion of Yahweh God. Now watch this. Greater than any marriage commitment you have ever made, think about this, 
where you die, that's where I will die. Now, our vows make it a point not to go there, right? Because we say, till death do us part. But Ruth ratchets that up. I'm going to be buried right there in that place. She links herself right there with Naomi's God. She realizes that to be a follower of God is to be with his people. Her determination, so powerful. It is so unbending. And she tops it all off with this oath. Note this, powerful. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And notice, Lord, again, is in all caps. She doesn't say Elohim. She doesn't say uh, Shaddai. She actually says, may Yahweh do to me. And more often, if anything but death parts you from me. She's now bound herself with her devotion and affection to the Lord God with an oath. She evokes the covenant name of God as her stance, as her witness to her stance in following Naomi. When people make a vow or made a vow during this time, they only evoke the name of the God to which they belonged. And boy, that's strong for where we are in the book of Ruth regarding her conversion. Speaking of a wedding ceremony, when I have the husband and the wife, man and woman, exchange vows, I end those vows within the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Why? Because I want that married couple to know that they're first making their vows to God. And then only then are they making them to one another. So to evoke the name of Yahweh God is to bring in all the covenant aspects of who the Lord God is. It would have been clear to Naomi at this point that Ruth is claiming Yahweh as her God. She makes it a binding vow. She actually even evokes a curse against herself if she doesn't keep her vow. Therefore, a determined faith follows no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Here we see radical commitment in the relationships appointed by the Lord. Her commitment, think about this, it it transcends geographical location, it transcends racial origins, and it transcends national and religious affiliations. Ruth conversion also reveals, think about this, the Lord's salvation and the fact that it transcends all of those things. The Lord's salvation transcends geography and racial origin and national religion. Our God's great mercy, His great love, His grace and forgiveness are available to anyone, even a pagan Moabite woman. The only thing that could ever make a person make a choice like Ruth made is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can condition your heart in such a way to make this kind of choice. Would it not be a wonderful thing if we could breed this kind of devotion and commitment and determined faith among the members of First Baptist Church Ozark? So a determined faith, finally, a determined faith overcomes. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Naomi, the literal Hebrew is, stops her mouth. When she could not be turned away, determination actually is the word to confirm yourself in your purpose. So Naomi saw that Ruth was so confirmed in her purpose that she just couldn't say anything else to her. Naomi could not force the issue. 
because of Ruth's determination and the vow that she had made. So Ruth's faith overcomes the obstacles in such a way that Naomi is forced to hold her tongue. What conclusion can we draw at this point? Ruth had decisively committed herself to Naomi's God. And at this point, Ruth has totally abandoned walking by sight, and she is now walking by faith. She is now trusting her future to Yahweh God. Ruth's determination here is more than just an attachment to a mother-in-law. You need to see this. This is a real determined attachment to the living God. We might put it this way, and that's why I titled it uh, The Providential Grace of God. We may put it this way. By grace through faith, Ruth was converted to the living God. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see why I believe this is the case. Chapter 2, we're going to get there soon. Chapter 2, verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Now, if we just stop there, we'd say, Well, she just, she's just clinging to a mother-in-law. But check this out. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord and the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here is Ruth taking refuge under the mighty wings of the Lord. And Psalm 17, verses 6 and 7, listen to it. Actually down through verse 8. Psalm 17, beginning in verse 6. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. She had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the living and covenant-keeping God. She sought refuge through a genuine and saving faith. And her determination actually was a fruit of having found refuge in the living God. This is how people of faith live once they have found their refuge in the wings of the Almighty. Her determination was the fruit of having found refuge in the living God. What did Ruth know about Yahweh? I mean, that's a fair question, right? What did she actually know? We have to ask ourselves the question, did Ruth have a full picture of Yahweh God. Do you think that Naomi talked to her daughters-in-law about faith in Yahweh? We certainly don't have the whole picture given to us. Uh, but what does Ruth know? She knows that the sovereign God of the universe can bring famines. She knows that. We find it at the very first of the, of the book of Ruth. We certainly know that she realizes that it is God alone that controls life and death. She knows that sometimes the hand of God stretches out against his people when they do not obey, and he does this for their good. She knows that a loving God will visit his people, just like he's done in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 1, and thus they're returning back home 
in the barley harvest, which is the beginning of the barley harvest, which is nothing more than the grace of God, she knows all these things. She knows that the frowning providences of God sometimes visit the people of God, and they can be very, very painful. We know what that's like as a child of God to go through those. So she knows that Yahweh keeps his covenant with his people, even in hard times. So please don't make the mistake to think that Ruth doesn't have a well-rounded view and picture of the God that she's connecting herself to. She does. She knows, probably better than most of us would know. So I want to remind you at times in our evangelistic efforts, we present a lopsided God to people. We tell people of the awesome love and tender mercies of God, and we should, right? We should expound upon the love of God, yet... We shouldn't stop short there from reminding people that to trust Christ means you follow him. It's not just salvation from hell. It is a life of love and devotion to Jesus, much like the words of Naomi. So when we just give a lopsided understanding of who God is, then what happens to people? Well, they, they go through a few hard times and they're actually shocked and surprised that this is not my best life now. They're shocked and surprised the follow part in the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, according to what Jesus said, will cost you everything. Everything. The Bible says it that way to us. And you want to know how the gospel should be presented? Well, we ought to look into the gospels and find out how Jesus himself gave the gospel. And many, many, many times he reminded us that to follow him will cost it all. But people today, when it's an easy believism, their response is often like this. This wasn't in the deal. I didn't hear this. When Ruth commits to him, she knows the God to whom she covenants. It would behoove all of us to know the God that we're covenanting with. Ruth had a real picture of God. Something else that is clear is that God used dark and frowning providences to bring Ruth out of Moab unto himself and into his lineage to be the great-grandmother of David. Now, we have the New Testament. So we know that God's ultimate purpose was, in fact, to bring her into the line of the Messiah. If you want to see that, read Matthew chapter 1. That his ultimate purpose was to do that. But a subordinate purpose was, of course, to be the great-grandmother of David, which is an amazing thing within itself. Yet through it all, what do we see God doing? Through famine, death, and, and death again, and uh, being widowed. What do we see God doing? We see God arranging the furniture in such a way that God is drawing Ruth unto himself, unto his wings for refuge. Think about what he did here to accomplish his will. He brought a famine. He brought a family out of the house of bread down to Moab. He took the life of Ruth's husband and Ruth's father-in-law. He did this in order to bring about saving faith in the life of Ruth. Do you believe that God Almighty orders the occasions and the instruments and the means of the conversion of his people? Sitting right there in the quiet place of your home, do you believe that our God is that sovereign, that he can order occasions, instruments, and means of conversion for his people? That is the strength of what's going on in the book of Ruth. God is doing this. If you are not in Christ, 
And you have not banked your hope in him alone as your prophet, priest, and king. I ask you today, what will it take for God to bring you to the place of humble repentance and faith? I want to remind you that God is more concerned with saving your soul than he is, than he is our temporary enjoyment of pleasures. He's more concerned with getting you to see who he is and for us to respond in humble repentance to him. God will go to great lengths to cause discomfort, displeasure, and sometimes pain in order to bring us to the place of humble repentance. And I say, thank you, Lord, that you care about souls that much to do that. And once he does that, we submit to Christ and we say things like, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. I will die where you die. We have this affectionate, loyal love. Sometimes he uses, now sitting in your home, think about this, in your own life. If you've not submitted yourself to Christ, if you've not repented and trusted him as your prophet, priest, and king, sometimes he uses this method to get your attention. He uses unbearable guilt and shame over your sin. Sometimes he arranges your life through death. He can arrange it through impoverishment and all kinds of things to bring you to faith in his son. There's nothing more important than for us to fall on our knees before him and submit to him and call Jesus Lord of all. Now in application, let's finish by focusing on some of the elements of Ruth's faith that are applicable for us today. Ruth, again, did not see the entire picture, but we see we're looking back from this side of Calvary. Yet wherever God works in faith, please never forget this, because the quintessential instrument that God uses to explain faith in the book of Romans is Abraham, right? You can't hardly go back any further than, than uh, that, that he believed God and God accounted it to him, gave it to his account, reckoned to his account righteousness because of faith. So understand that there are common elements that you ought to have with your faith and Ruth's faith or Abraham's faith or Jacob or any of those in the Old Testament. That's what the hall of faith is about, by the way, in the book of Hebrews. So faith is a gift from God. And when God works faith in his people, there are some common elements. And real quickly, think about this. True faith is born out of the valley of decision when the options are clear. We, we can apply that to every one of us. Ruth uh, for Ruth, you had Moab and Chemosh, and you had Judah and Yahweh. Those were the two decisions. Some are able to articulate the choice at hand, but you know the choice is there. You, some of us, we, we see the choice right in front of us, but you've never made the clear-cut decision to abandon false gods, and you've never made that decision to trust and follow Jesus only. The Spirit of God has that incredible power to place you right in the middle of the valley of decision so that to, follow, to not follow Christ is, in essence, to follow your idols. The Lord puts you right in that valley of decision. Did Joshua not do this? Just before the judges period and just before it all went haywire, where every man did that was right in his own eyes, Joshua stands before the people and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But Joshua makes his stand. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now listen, by saying choice and decision, 
I am not promoting what happens in church life so often called decisional regeneration. Some people think that just because they made a decision that they actually got saved. Now, we're talking about more than that. We're talking about when the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the Word of God and so impresses it upon your conscience and your heart in such a way that you know that you can't straddle the fence any longer. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You either say yes to Jesus or you say no and you end up following your God's to your own destruction. Some of you are there today. Young person listening, uh, you have the way of your peers. You have the way of what the media pushes out, materialism today, and, and all the things that you can just have as the American dream. If you just reach out and do your best to get them, you've got all these fleshy desires. Some of you young boys, you got hormone desires. you got all kinds of desires that overwhelm your life. And then... You have Jesus. You getting this? You have all these things, but you have Christ. And furthermore, Christ will often mean ridicule from your peers. All the parties that some people are going to, you probably won't get invited to them anymore if you start living for Jesus. I want to ask you a question. Are you in the valley of decision today? Has your heart otherwise become so hardened to the gospel that your unbelief is simply confirming you in your unrighteous state? And that's what happens when you sit under the gospel over and over and over and your heart is so hard and you're just pushing it away. But if you're in the valley of decision today, I implore you by the mercy and righteousness of Christ to come to faith in him. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus today. Some of you say, well, pastor, I've never heard the gospel put that way. Well, I would suggest that you read the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. Jesus was the master evangelist. No one shared the gospel like the one who held the gospel. And Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus said things like this. If, you don't, if your love for me doesn't appear as hatred, he literally says that. Those who come after me must hate his father and mother. Well, he didn't mean that you literally hate them. What he does mean is that comparatively speaking, your love for Jesus ought to be so supreme that it appears like hatred in comparison to your mom and your dad. That's strong words. There was an individual who came to Jesus and said, I will follow you, but let me first go bury my father. And what does Jesus say? Oh, he gives a cost in there. Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I hate to break the news to you, but only disciples go to heaven. Period. Only disciples go to heaven. You want to enter into heaven? You won't enter into heaven simply because you have the date that you prayed the prayer etched in the front of your Bible. That does not guarantee you heaven. What does is that you are a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. So what you etched in your Bible and the date you etched in should be a carryover of believing the gospel every day of your life, and you should be a disciple. Only disciples go to heaven because only disciples are true Christians. The Bible knows nothing of a differentiation between a Christian and a disciple. A disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple. All true Christians are disciples, and all disciples are true Christians. There's only one category of faith people that exists in the Bible, and that is disciples. What was Jesus doing with this rich young ruler? He was putting him right in the midst of the valley of decision. And he says to him, it's pretty clear cut, isn't it? It's your money or me. That's what he says. He goes away because he's sorrowful because he has so many possessions. Jesus said, 
He actually gives him the number one commandment. That's the one he breaks. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So think about this, folks. The church of the living God, our church, and I hope we do this, but we must recover a biblical gospel that says there's only two roads and only one of the two leads to heaven. We've got to recover that teaching. The Bible says there's a broad way that leads to destruction. And many are on it. But there is a narrow way that leads to eternal life. And few therein find it. There is no third road. There's no third road called the carnal Christian road. I want to remind you of that. We love to think about that. Oh, I can just live carnally all I want to and just drift. No, that's not the kind of faith that the Bible expands upon when it speaks of faith. Furthermore, if you find this Christian thing as a merely kickback thing on the road to bliss, then I'm telling you, you're on the wrong road. There's nothing easy about living for Jesus. Now, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what a blessing when he's carrying it. But the fact of the matter is, it's difficult. Jesus said, if you are to have eternal life, you are to come after him. We forget that in the gospel. Faith is born out of the valley of decision when the options are clearly given. Number two, faith cleaves to its object with loyal love and attachment. Now, there's no doubt that Naomi represents somewhat symbolically the true and living God. And as she attaches herself to Naomi, she's thus attaching herself into the refuge of the wings of God. I get that. We will cleave. Will we cleave to Jesus with this kind of loyal love and affection? Here's a good way to describe your salvation experience. If it's real, I cleaved to Jesus. Just think about that. that. That is what real salvation is, is to cleave to him only. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man finds and he, in a field. He finds a, a treasure and he buries it in that field. And then for the joy of it, he goes back and he sells all that he has to purchase that field. And the question we have to ask, is Jesus the supreme joy of our life so much so that we cling to him above all other competitors in life? Jesus, on another occasion, said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That's John 6, 35. When he preached like this, he began to thin the crowds. If you scan on down in chapter 6, he says things like, the ones the Father gives to me will come to me. And then he gets on down and he says this, uh, he says, if you're going to be part of me, you have to eat, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. Son, by the time you get to the end of that chapter, <laughs> here's what verse 66 says of John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Uh. And then Peter is asked by Jesus, are you going to leave me too? Are y'all going to go back too? And then, you know, Jesus talks about, well, I've chosen the 12 of you myself, and one of you is even the devil, Judas, right? Jesus says that to him. But the amazing thing about it is when he asked Peter this, are you going to leave me as well? Here's what Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Isn't that awesome? There is that supreme, there it is, that supreme loyal love and affection and attachment. Where else can we go? And then Peter says, you alone have the words of eternal life. And this is awesome. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
That's true love and attachment. Cleaving to Jesus, by the way, is like a marriage. It is. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. There's only one cleaving that will get you to heaven. There's only one cleaving that will save your soul, and it's cleaving to Jesus. Number three, true faith follows no matter what the cost. Just quickly, Naomi throws a lot of obstacles out there. Does she not? Uh, Ruth has a lot of peer pressure and ethnicity and all kind of things that Naomi puts on her, but Ruth will not budge. She will not be turned away. She followed Naomi no matter what the cost. True faith follows no matter what the cost. And finally, true faith overcomes all obstacles. 1 John 5, 4 reminds us, wonderful verse of Scripture, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Fill in the gap, if you read this verse, our faith. Hear it again, folks. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And if you just stop there, it can be any kind of faith, right? But notice how, Jesus, how John ends it. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You don't overcome in faith unless your faith is in that object. Unless Jesus Christ is your God. If you belong to Christ, supreme loyal love and attachment, there's a realization that no matter what comes, famine, flood, COVID-19, life or death, your God can overcome all things. Isn't that awesome? It is. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the world. Jesus has overcome all things. It takes true birth from the Son of God to let that sink into your conscience and mind so that, so that you don't live in fear. I was thinking of this verse walking into the auditorium today. Perfect love casts out all fear. I can honestly say to you that I'm not fearful of COVID-19. I'm more fearful of, of the God of eternity who can not only kill the body, but can destroy the soul and put it in hell. That's what Jesus said. That's what fears, my fears are way more along those lines. But what is it? What is it inside of a true child of God that causes us to lean on verses like that? I'm telling you, folks, it's true faith that does that. What is it that causes you to accept and lean upon a verse like Romans 8.28 and not do like this to it? There are people who say, no, I don't want to believe that all things work together for good to them that love God and called according to his purpose. Because if I do, that means all things, all things work together for good. What is it that causes that? Well, we grab onto this truth in times of trouble. We find our faith tried and true in the face of barriers and obstacles. How about these obstacles? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But yet, true faith still overcomes those very obstacles. We still press on no matter what. Jesus will say in Revelation 2 and 3, chapter 2 and chapter 3, how many times does he say this? To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. He says it over and over again. True faith is a faith that overcomes. Now, in wrapping this up, what kind of faith do you have? In the quietness of your mind and heart, answer this question before God. And I want to remind you, he's an all-knowing God. He knew that thought before you just thought it. 
So ask him that question. What kind of faith do you have? Is it the kind of faith where you have attached yourself to Christ and you know that he is in you? That you live and breathe and have your life and motion and everything about you knowing full well that you're attached to Christ? Is he your hope of glory? In him, have you found a life of obedience and fruitfulness? Is he your supreme joy? Do you know that it is this attachment to Christ alone that's going to take you to heaven? Are you banking your hope in Jesus alone to save you from your sins and to take you to heaven? The Bible expressly teaches us that there is no other sacrifice that can forgive you of your sins. Have you by grace laid hold of Christ through a true and living faith? This is what matters most. I love this verse out of Romans. Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Why is that the case? Because our righteousness comes from Jesus. It's a gift from God. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Providential grace and determined faith. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Great God, we stand in awe of your incredible grace. The Bible says, for by grace... Are you saved through faith? And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Lord, it's an amazing thing to read the book of Ruth and know the history and the chronology and know that you were at work in difficult and awful circumstances. Through trials, tribulations, you were at work honing in on Naomi's faith and bringing a Moabite girl into the lineage of Christ, saving her soul and putting her right there, a Moabite, Moabite vein, flowing through Moabite veins is your incredible bloodline. Lord, amazing. Father, we thank you for that. We're also reminded today that uh, Ruth's faith, in many, many ways, there are elements of it that should be present in our own lives. Lord Jesus, have we attached ourselves to you with loyal love and affection uh, that supersedes all other loves in life, no matter what that is? Lord, will we willing, are we willing to follow you at all costs? Lord, help us. Help us as your people. Lord, help us to, to walk with you. Lord, help us to honor you. Lord, help us to be devoted to you above all things. And we end by saying again, thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can say and confess with the Holy Spirit in us that Jesus Christ is Lord. We say that. We say it boldly. Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no name given among men under heaven. No other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for such a great salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.